0: Hello and welcome to Tea and Old Books. My name is Jenny. Today is January the 31st and we are currently reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Hello and welcome back to Tea and Old Books. It has been a long time since I recorded an episode. Apologies, I have had various technical problems which held me back as well as my own lack of motivation through tiredness and weariness. I'm sure you can all understand where we are at this point in the year. But I am back on it today. Today is January the 31st. It's the end of the year and I was thinking to myself, I am going to finish reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I don't know if I'm going to actually be able to do that because I think we have a few chapters left. But I'm feeling optimistic that we can we can get close, if not to the end of the book. And we left on a very exciting part last time. So last episode, all those weeks before, we had the nautilus stuck under loads of ice. So I think they were in the South Pole, and they've got themselves trapped under the block of ice that is there and they're running out of air. And that is the exciting moment that I chose to stop reading the book for many weeks, more than many weeks, for a couple of months. Now, like I said, I had a few technical issues. So first of all, I went on holiday. So that was, that was one thing. And then I had a problem with my microphone. Now, I was very kindly gifted a new microphone But I can't get it to work because my computer is so old and so tired that it refuses to do what I want it to do. So I'm still using the old microphone which is a little bit clunky and I have this shiny new microphone sitting next to me taunting me with its newness and my inability to make it do what I want it to do. So hopefully... I will sort this out somehow through magic. I don't even know how I'm going to force my computer to do what I want it to do. It's too old. Poor thing. Anyway, we're going to continue reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but first let's talk about the tea that I'm drinking. So next to me, I have a lovely cup of warm tea. It's quite cold in Spain, so I need to drink as much warm liquid as possible. And this is a Christmas tea and I don't actually know what it is because it very excitingly came from a tea advent calendar that a friend sent me. So every day of advent, you would slip out the tea bag with the appropriate number on and, and drink it. And it was a mystery flavor. Now it does say on the back of the, the packet what all the different flavors are, but each individual one, you, you don't know what it is. So I think this one that I have today is a ginger tea. ginger mixed with something. The writing is also very small so I can't really read it but it's some kind of ginger tea and it's lovely and warm. I love ginger in the winter it's great. Of course advent is over but like many things I was slow at drinking the tea so I still have a couple of them left though I think this might be the last one. Had a sip? Yeah definitely ginger. Ah it's nice. I feel like I'm very slight, I've got a very slight cold, and a ginger drink makes me feel better. Now, let us get on with the book. So, chapter 16 we are up to, and chapter 16 is called Want of Air. So, I think this is going to be a pretty exciting chapter of them trying to work out all the maths behind not suffocating. Let us continue reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Chapter 16. Want of air. Thus, around the Nautilus, above and below, was an impenetrable wall of ice. We were prisoners to the iceberg. I watched the captain. His countenance had resumed its habitual imperturbability. Well, that's a long word. Is that a real word? Let's continue. Sorry. Gentlemen, he said calmly, there are two ways of dying in the circumstances in which we are placed. This puzzling person had the air of a mathematical professor lecturing to his pupils. The first is to be crushed. The second is to die of suffocation. I do not speak of the possibility of dying of hunger for the supply of provisions in the Nautilus will certainly last longer than we shall. Let us then calculate our chances. ''As to suffocation, Captain,'' I replied, ''that is not to be feared, because our reserves are full. ''Just so, but they will only yield two days' supply of air. ''Now for thirty-six hours we have been hidden under the water, ''and already the heavy atmosphere of the Nautilus requires renewal. ''In forty-eight hours our reserve will be exhausted. ''Well, Captain, can we be delivered before forty-eight hours?'' We will attempt it at least by piercing the wall that surrounds us. On which side? Sound will tell us. I am going to run the Nautilus aground on the lower bank, and my men will attack the iceberg on the side that is least thick. Captain Nemo went out. Soon I discovered by a hissing noise that the water was entering the reserves. The Nautilus sank slowly and rested on the ice at a depth of 350 yards depth at which the lower bank was immersed my friends I said our situation is serious but I can rely on your courage and energy sir replied the Canadian I am ready to do anything for the general safety good Ned and I held out my hand to the Canadian I will add he continued that being as handy with the pickaxe as with the harpoon if I can be useful to the captain he can command my services He will not refuse your help. Come, Ned. I led him to the room where the crew of the Nautilus were putting on their cork jackets. I told the captain of Ned's proposal, which he accepted. The Canadian put on his sea costume and was ready as soon as his companions. When Ned was dressed, I re-entered the drawing room where the panes of glass were open and posted near Conseil. I examined the ambient beds that supported the Nautilus. Some instants after, we saw a dozen of the crew set foot on the bank of ice, and among them Ned Land, easily known by his stature. Captain Nemo was with them. Before proceeding to dig the walls, he took the soundings, to be sure of working in the right direction. Long-sounding lines were sunk in the side walls, but after 15 yards they were again stopped by the thick wall. It was useless to attack it on the ceiling-like surface since the iceberg itself measured more than 400 yards in height. Captain Nemo then sounded the lower surface. There, ten yards of wall separated us from the water. So great was the thickness of the ice field. It was necessary, therefore, to cut from it a piece equal in extent to the waterline of the Nautilus. There were about 6,000 cubic yards to detach, so as to dig a hole by which we could descend the ice field. The work had begun immediately and carried on with indefinable energy. Instead of digging round the Nautilus, which would have involved greater difficulty, Captain Nemo had an immense trench made at eight yards from the port quarter. Then the men set to work simultaneously with their screws on several points of its circumference. Presently the pickaxe attacked this compact matter vigorously and large blocks were detached from the mass. By a curious effect of specific gravity, these blocks, lighter than water, fled, so to speak, to the vault of the tunnel, that increased in thickness at the top in proportion as it diminished at the base. But that mattered little, so long as the lower part grew thinner. After two hours' hard work, Ned Land came in exhausted. He and his comrades were replaced by new workers, whom Conseil and I joined. The second lieutenant of the Nautilus superintended us. The water seemed singularly cold, but I soon got warm, handling the pickaxe. My movements were free enough, although they were made under a pressure of 30 atmospheres. When I re-entered after working two hours to take some food and rest, I found a perceptible difference between the pure fluid with which the rocket bay engine supplied me and the atmosphere of the Nautilus already charged with the carbonic acid. The air had not been renewed for 48 hours and its vivifying qualities were considerably enfeebled. However, after a lapse of 12 hours, we had only raised a block of ice one yard thick on the marked surface, which is about 600 cubic yards. Reckoning that it took 12 hours to accomplish this much, it would take five nights and four days to bring this enterprise to a satisfactory conclusion. Five nights and four days, and we have only air enough for two days in the reserves. Without taking into account, said Ned, that even if we get out of this infernal prison, we shall also be imprisoned under the iceberg, shut out from all possible communication with the atmosphere. True enough. Who could then foresee the minimum of time necessary for our deliverance? We might be suffocated before the Nautilus could regain the surface of the waves. Was it destined to perish in this ice tomb, with all those it enclosed? The situation was terrible, but everyone had looked the danger in the face, and each was determined to do his duty to the last. As I expected, during the night a new block a yard square was carried away, and still further sank the immense hollow. But in the morning, when, dressed in my cork jacket, I traversed the slushy mass at temperature of 6 or 7 degrees below zero, I remarked that the side walls were gradually closing in. The beds of water farthest from the trench, that were not warmed by the men's work, showed a tendency to solidification. In presence of this new and imminent danger, what would become of our chances of safety, and how hinder the solidification of this liquid medium, that would burst the partitions of the Nautilus like glass. I did not tell my companions of this new danger. What was the good of damping the energy they displayed in the painful work of escape? But when I went on board again, I told Captain Nemo of this grave complication. I know it, he said, in that calm tone which could counteract the most terrible apprehensions. It is one danger more, but I see no way of escaping it. The only chance of safety is to go quicker than solidification. We must be beforehand with it, that is all. On this day, for several hours, I used my pickaxe vigorously. The work kept me up. Besides, to work was to quit the nautilus and breathe directly the pure air drawn from the reserves and supplied by our apparatus, and to quit the impoverished and vitiated atmosphere. Towards evening, the trench was dug one yard deeper. When I returned on board, I was nearly suffocated by the carbonic acid with which the air was filled. Ugh. But if we only had the chemical means to drive away this gas. We had plenty of oxygen. All this water contained a considerable quantity, and by dissolving it with our powerful piles, it would restore the vivifying fluid. I had thought well over it, but of what good was that Since the carbonic acid produced by our respiration had invaded every part of the vessel. To absorb it, it was necessary to fill some jars with caustic potash and to shake them incessantly. Now this substance was wanting on board, and nothing could replace it. That evening Captain Nemo ought to open the taps of his reserves and let some pure air into the interior of the Nautilus. Without this precaution, We could not get rid of the sense of suffocation. The next day, March 26th, I resumed my miner's work in beginning the fifth yard. The side walls and the lower surface of the iceberg thickened visibly. It was evident that they would meet before the nautilus was able to disengage itself. Despair seized me for an instant. My pickaxe nearly fell from my hands. What was the good of digging if I must be suffocated? crushed by the water that was turning into stone a punishment that the ferocity of the savages would not have even invented just then captain nemo passed near me i touched his hand and showed him the walls of our prison the wall to port had advanced to at least four yards from the hull of the nautilus the captain understood me and signed me to follow him we went on board i took off my cork jacket and accompanied him into the drawing room Monsieur Aranae, we must attempt some desperate means, or we shall shall be sealed up in this solidified water, as in cement. Yes, but what is to be done? Uh, If my nautilus were strong enough to bear this pressure without being crushed. Well, I asked, not catching the captain's idea. Do you not understand, he replied, that this congelation of water will help us? Do you not see that by its solidification it would burst through this field of ice that imprisons us, as, when it freezes, it bursts the hardest stones, do you not perceive that it would be an agent of safety instead of destruction? Yes, Captain, perhaps. But whatever resistance to crushing the Nautilus possesses, it could not support this terrible pressure and would be flattened like an iron plate. I know it so. Therefore, we must not reckon on the aid of nature, but on our own exertions. We must stop this solidification. Not only will the side walls be pressed together, but there is not ten feet of water before or behind the nautilus. The congelation gains on us on all sides. How long will the air in the reserves last for us to breathe on board? The captain looked in my face. After tomorrow, they will be empty. A cold sweat came over me. However, ought I to have been astonished at the answer? On March 22, the Nautilus was in the open polar seas. We were at 26 degrees. For five days we had lived on the reserve on board, and what was left of the respirable air must be kept for the workers. Even now, as I write, my recollection is still so vivid that an involuntary terror seizes me, and my lungs seem to be without air. Meanwhile, Captain Nemo reflected silently, and evidently an idea had struck him, but he seemed seemed to reject it. At last, these words escaped his lips. Boiling water, he muttered. Boiling water? I cried. Yes, sir. We are enclosed in a space that is relatively confined. Would not jets of boiling water constantly injected by the pumps raise the temperature in this part and stay the congelation? Let us try it, I said resolutely. Let us try it, Professor. The thermometer then stood at seven degrees outside. Captain Nemo took me to the galleys where the vast distillery machines stood that furnished the drinkable water by evaporation. They filled these with water and all the electric heat from the piles was thrown through the worms bathed in the liquid. In a few minutes, this water reached a 100 degrees. It was directed towards the pumps while fresh water replaced it in proportion The heat developed by the troughs was such that cold water, drawn up from the sea after only having gone through the machines, came boiling into the body of the pump. The injection was begun, and three hours after the thermometer marked six degrees below zero outside, one degree was gained. Two hours later, the thermometer only marked four degrees. We shall succeed, I said to the captain, after having anxiously watched the results of the operation. I think, he answered, that we shall not be crushed. We have no more suffocation to fear. During the night, the temperature of the water rose to one degree below zero. The injections could not carry it to a higher point, but as the coagulation of the seawater produces at least two degrees, I was at least reassured against the dangers of solidification. The next day, March 27th, six yards of ice had been cleared, twelve feet only remaining to be cleared away. There was, no, there was yet forty-eight hours' work. The air could not be renewed in the interior of the nautilus, and this day would make it worse. An intolerable weight oppressed me. Towards three o'clock in the evening, this feeling rose to a violent degree. Yawns dislocated my jaws. My lungs panted as they inhaled this burning fluid, which became rarefied more and more. Moral torpor took hold of me. I was powerless, almost unconscious. My brave Conseil, though exhibiting the same symptoms and suffering in the same manner, never left me. He took my hand, and encouraged me, and I heard him murmur, "Oh, if I could only not breathe, so as to leave more air for my master." Tears came into my eyes on hearing him speak thus. If our situation to all was intolerable in the interior, with what, with what haste and gladness! would we put on our cork jackets to work in our turn? Pickaxes sounded on the frozen ice beds. Our arms ached. The skin was torn off our hands. But what were these fatigues? And what did wounds matter? Vital air came to the lungs. We breathed. We breathed. All this time, no one prolonged his voluntary task beyond the prescribed time. His task accomplished, each one handed in turn to his panting companions the apparatus that supplied him with life. Captain Nemo set the example, and submitted first to the severe discipline. When the time came, he gave up his apparatus to another and returned to the vitiated air on board, calm, unflinching, unmurmuring. On that day, the ordinary work was accomplished with unusual vigour. Only two yards remained to be raised from the surface two yards only separated us from the open sea but the reserves were nearly emptied of air the little that remained ought to be kept for the workers not a particle for the nautilus when i went back on board i was half suffocated what a night i know not how to describe it the next day my breathing was oppressed dizziness accompanied the pain in my head and made me like a drunken man my companions showed the same symptoms Some of the crew had rattling in the throat. On that day, the sixth of our imprisonment, Captain Nemo, finding the pickaxe's work too slowly, resolved to crush the ice bed that still separated us from the liquid sheet. This man's coolness and energy never forsook him. He subdued his physical pains by moral force. By his orders, the vessel was lightened, that is to say, raised from the ice bed by a change of specific gravity. When it floated, they towed it, so as to bring it above the immense trench made on the level of the waterline. Then, filling his reservoirs of water, he descended and shut himself up in the hole. Just then, all the crew came on board, and the double door of communication was shut. The nautilus then rested on the bed of ice, which was not one yard thick, and which the sounding leads had perforated in a thousand places. The taps of the reserves were then opened, and a hundred cubic yards of water was let in, increasing the weight of the Nautilus to 1,800 tons. We waited, we listened, forgetting our sufferings and hope. Our safety depended on this last chance. Notwithstanding the buzzing in my head, I soon heard the humming sound under the hull of the Nautilus. The ice cracked with a singular noise like tearing paper and the Nautilus sank. We are off, murmured Conseil in my ear. I could not answer him. I seized his hand and pressed it convulsively. All at once, carried away by its frightful overcharge, the Nautilus sank like a bullet under the waters. That is to say, it fell as if it were in a vacuum. Then all the electric force was put on the pumps that soon began to let the water out of the reserves. After some minutes, our fall was stopped soon too the manometer indicated an ascending movement the screw going at full speed made the iron hull tremble to its very bolts and drew us towards the north but if this floating under the iceberg is to last another day before we reach the open sea i shall be dead first half stretched upon a divan in the library i was suffocating my face was purple my lips blue my faculties suspended i neither saw nor heard the notion of time had gone from my mind. My muscles could not contract. I do not know how many hours passed thus, but I was conscious of the agony that was coming over me. I felt as if I was going to die. Suddenly I came to. Some breaths of air penetrated my lungs. Had we risen to the surface of the waves? Were we free of the iceberg? No. Ned and Conseil, my two brave friends of sacrificing themselves to save me. Some particles of air still remained at the bottom of one apparatus. Instead of using it, they had kept it for me, and while they were being suffocated, they gave me life, drop by drop. I wanted to push back the thing. They held my hands, and for some moments I breathed freely. I looked at the clock. It was 11 in the morning. It ought to be the 28th of March. The Nautilus went at a frightful pace, 40 miles an hour. It literally tore through the water. Where was Captain Nemo? Had he succumbed? Were his companions dead with him? At the moment, the manometer indicated we were not more than 20 feet from the surface. A mere plate of ice separated us from the atmosphere. Could we not break it? Perhaps. In any case, the Nautilus was going to attempt it. I felt that it was in an oblique position, lowering the stern and raising the bows. The introduction of water had been the means of disturbing its equilibrium. Then, impelled by its powerful screw, it attacked the ice field from beneath like a formidable battering ram. It broke it by backing and then rushing forward against the field, which gradually gave way, and at last, dashing suddenly against it, shot forwards on the ice field that crushed beneath its weight. The panel was opened, one might say torn off, and the pure air came in ab- in abundance to all parts of the Nautilus. Ooh, end of the chapter. Well, I mean, that was quite long there. Like, lots of, I don't really understand what happened when they dug their way out. I guess they were sort of trapped in a underwater, under-iceberg cave and then had to dig their way out of that. But... Lots of um, strange sort of like class love there with the the harpoonist and conseil willingly sacrificing their own lives, potentially, their own heir to save the professor. Not sure how I feel about it. Let's continue reading. Um, we'll read chapter 17. I don't remember how many chapters are left. I suspect that this is not the last chapter, so we may still well have some time to go. After this episode chapter 17 from Cape Horn to the Amazon how I got onto the platform I have no idea perhaps the Canadian had carried me there but I breathed I inhaled the vivifying sea air my two companions were getting drunk with the fresh particles Okay, so they're not dead. They've carried him up there. I mean, is he just much weaker? This idea like the the intellectuals are somehow physically weaker than the others and therefore the lack of oxygen sort of felled him first. It's interesting. Let's carry on reading. The other unhappy men had been so long without food that they could not with impunity indulge in the simplest elements that were given them. We, on the contrary, had no end to restrain ourselves. We could draw this air freely into our lungs, and it was the breeze, the breeze alone, that filled us with this keen enjoyment. Ah, said Conciel, how delightful this oxygen is. Master need not fear to breathe it. There is enough for everybody. Ned Land did not speak, but he opened his jaws wide enough to frighten a shark. <laughs> pausing. That's a hilarious image. What? He's just opened his mouth really wide, just sucking as much oxygen as he can. Fantastic. Our strength soon returned, and when I looked round me, I saw we were alone on the platform. The foreign seamen in the Nautilus were contented with the air that circulated in the interior. None of them had come up to drink in the open air. The first words I spoke were words of gratitude and thankfulness to my two companions. Ned and Conseil had prolonged my life during the last hours of this long agony, all my gratitude could not repay such devotion. My friends said I we are bound to one another forever and I am under infinite obligations to you which I shall take advantage of exclaimed the Canadian (laughs) what do you mean said Conseil. I mean that I shall take you with me when I leave this infernal Nautilus well said Conseil. after all this we are going right yes I replied for we are going the way of the Sun and here the Sun is in the north no doubt said Ned Land but it remains to be seen whether he will bring the ship into the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean, that is, into frequented or deserted seas. I could not answer that question, and I feared that Captain Nemo would rather take us to the vast ocean that touches the coasts of Asia and America at the same time. He would thus complete the tour around the submarine world and return to those waters in which the Nautilus could sail freely. We ought before long to settle this important point. The Nautilus went at a rapid pace. The polar circle was soon passed, and the course shaped for Cape Horn. We were off the American point March 31st at seven o'clock in the evening. Then all our past sufferings were forgotten. The remembrance of that imprisonment in the ice was effaced from our minds. We only thought of the future. Captain Nemo did not appear again, either in the drawing room or on the platform. The point shown each day on the planisphere And marked by the lieutenant showed me the exact direction of the Nautilus. Now on that evening it was evident to my great satisfaction that we were going back to the north by the Atlantic. The next day April 1st when the Nautilus ascended to the surface some minutes before noon we sighted land to the west. It was Terra del Fuego which the first navigators named thus from seeing the quantity of smoke that rose from the natives huts. The coast seemed low to me, but in the distance rose high mountains. I even thought I had a glimpse of Mount Sarmiento that rises 2,070 yards above the level of the sea with a very pointed summit, which, according as it is misty or clear, is a sign of fine or of wet weather. At this moment, the peak was clearly defined against the sky. The nautilus, diving again under the water, approached the coast. Which was only some few miles off. From the glass windows in the drawing room, I saw long seaweeds and gigantic fuci, and varach, of which the open polar sea contains so many specimens. With their sharp, polished filaments, they measured about three hundred yards in length—real cables, are thicker than one's thumb, and having great tenacity. They are often used as ropes for vessels. Another weed known as velp with leaves four feet long, buried in the coral concretions, hung at the bottom. It served as nest and food for myriads of crustacea and mollusks, crabs and cuttlefish. There, seals and otters had splendid repasts, eating the flesh of fish with sea vegetables, according to the English fashion. Over this fertile and luxuriant ground, the Nautilus passed with great rapidity. Towards evening, it approached the Falkland group, the rough summits of which I recognised the following day. The depth of the sea was moderate. On the shores, our nets brought in beautiful specimens of seaweed and particularly a certain fucus, the roots of which were filled with the best mussels in the world. Geese and ducks fell by dozens on the platform and soon took their places in the pantry on board. When the last heights of the Falklands had disappeared from the horizon, the Nautilus sank to between 20 and 25 yards and followed the American coast. Captain Nemo did not show himself. Until the 3rd of April, we did not quit the shores of Patagonia, sometimes under the ocean, sometimes at the surface. The Nautilus passed beyond the large estuary formed by the Uruguay. Its direction was northwards and followed the long windings of the coast of South America. We had then made 1,600 miles since our embarkation in the seas of Japan. About 11 o'clock in the morning, the Tropic of Capricorn was crossed on the 37th Meriden, and we passed Cape Frio, standing out to sea. Captain Nemo, to Ned Land's great displeasure, did not like the neighbourhood of the inhabited coasts of Brazil, for we went at a giddy speed. Not a fish, not a bird of the swiftest kind could follow us, and the natural curiosities of these seas escaped all observation. This speed was kept up for several days, and in the evening of the ninth of April we sighted the most westerly point of South America that forms Cape San Roque. But then the Nautilus swerved again and sought the lowest depth of a submarine valley, which is between this Cape and Sierra Leone on the African coast. The, ba- the valley by four capes to the parallel of the Antilles and terminates at the mouth by the enormous depression of 9,000 yards. In this place, the geological basin of the ocean forms, as far as the Lester Antilles, a cliff to three and a half miles perpendicular in height and at the parallel of the Cape Verde Islands. And other wall not less considerable, that encloses thus all the sunk continent of the Atlantic. The bottom of this immense valley is dotted with some mountains that give to these submarine places a picturesque aspect. I speak moreover from the manuscript charts that were in the library of the Nautilus, charts evidently due to Captain ch- charts evidently due to Captain Nemo's hand and made after his personal observations. For two days, the desert and deep waters were visited by means of the inclined plains. The Nautilus was furnished with long diagonal broadsides, which carried it to all elevations. But, on the 11th of April, it rose suddenly and land appeared at the mouth of the Amazon River, a vast estuary, the embouchure of which is so considerable that it freshens the seawater for the distance of several leagues. The equator was crossed. Twenty miles to the west were the Guineas, a French territory on which we could have found an easy refuge, but a stiff wind was blowing and the furious waves would not have allowed a single boat to face them. Ned Land understood that, no doubt, for he spoke not a word about it. For my part, I made no allusion to his schemes of flight, for I would not urge him to make an attempt that must inevitably fail. I made the time pass pleasantly by interesting studies. During the days of April 11th, and 12th, the Nautilus did not leave the surface of the sea, and the nets brought in a marvelous haul of zoophytes, fish, and reptiles. Some zoophytes had been fished up by the chain of the nets. They were for the most part beautiful, physatelines belonging to their Actinidean family. So I'm stumbling over the Latin again here. <laughs> Let's continue on. And among other species, the Phyctus protexta, peculiar to that part of the ocean with a little cylindrical trunk, ornamented with vertical lines, speckled with red dots, crowning a marvellous blossoming of tentacles. As to the mollusks, they consisted of some I had already observed. Olive porphyries with regular lines intercrossed, with red spots standing out plainly against the flesh. Odd terraceres, like petrified scorpions, translucent hyleas, argonauts, cuttlefish, excellent eating, and certain species of calmars that naturalists of antiquity have classed among the flying fish, and that serve principally for di- for bait for cod fishing. I had now an opportunity of studying several species of fish on these shores, among the cartilaginous ones. Petromyzones, Prica, a sort of eel 15 inches long with a greenish head, violet fins, grey-blue back, brown belly, silvered and sown with bright spots, the pupil of the eye encircled with gold. A curious animal that the current of the Amazon had drawn to the sea, for they inhabit fresh waters, turpulated streaks with pointed snouts and a long loose tail armed with a long jagged sting little sharks, a yard long, grey and whitish skin, and several rows of teeth, bent back, that are generally known by the name of pantufles, Vesperterios, a kind of red isosceles triangle, half a yard long, to which pectorals are attached by fleshy prolongations that make them look like bats, but that their horny appendage, situated near the nostrils, has given them the name of sea unicorns. Lastly, some species of ballastae, whose spots were of a brilliant gold colour, and the caprichcus of clear violet, with varying shades like a pigeon's throat. I end here this catalogue, which is somewhat dry, perhaps, but very exact, with a series of bony fish that I observed in passing, belonging to the Ant- a- apternotes, and whose snout is white as snow. The body of a beautiful black marked with very long, fleshy stripe. adonted gathnes, armed with spikes, sardines nine inches long, glittering with a bright silver light, a species of mackerel provided with two anal fins, center notes of a blackish tint, that are fished for with torches, long fish, two yards in length, with fat flesh, white and firm, which when they arc fresh, taste like eel and, when dry, like smoked salmon. Labres, half red, covered with scales, only at the bottom of the dorsal and anal fins. Chrysoptera, on which gold and silver blend their brightness, with that of the ruby and topaz, golden-tailed spares, the flesh of which is extremely delicate, and whose phosphorescent properties betray them in the midst of the waters. Orange-coloured spares with long tongues, Magrays with gold caudal fins, dark thorn tails, etc. Just pausing there briefly to say, man, that was a long sentence. Like, just a huge list of fish in a sentence that went on for about three pages. Whew! Oh my gosh. Oh, I don't know if you can hear yelling outside. People are setting off fireworks. It's only 7 pm, but I guess they're keen. I'm just going to have some tea. All right, let's continue. Notwithstanding this, etc, I must not omit to, to mention fish the Conseil will long remember, and with good reason, one of our nets had hauled up a sort of very flat ray fish, which, with the tail cut off, formed a perfect disc and weighed twenty ounces. It was white underneath, red above, with large round spots of dark blue encircled with black, very glossy skin terminated in a fin laid out on the platform it struggled tried to turn itself by convulsive movements and made so many efforts that one last turn had nearly sent it into the sea but Conseil, not wishing to let the fish go rushed to it and before i could prevent him had seized it with both hands in a moment he was overthrown his legs in the air and half his body paralyzed crying oh master master help me It was the first time the poor boy had spoken to me so familiarly. The Canadian and I took him up and rubbed his contracted arms till he became sensible. The unfortunate conseil had attacked a cramp fish of the most dangerous kind, the cumana. This odd animal, in a medium conductor like water, strikes fish at several yards distance. So great is the power of its electric organ, the two principal surfaces of which do not measure less than 27 square feet. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, let's just keep reading. I feel something wrong with the translation sometimes. The next day, April 12th, the Nautilus approached the Dutch coast near the mouth of the Maroni. There are several groups of sea cows herded together. They were manatees that, like the Dugon and the Stellara, Belong to the skinian order, these beautiful animals, peaceful and inoffensive, from eighteen to twenty one feet in length, weigh at least sixteen hundred weight. I told Ned Land and Conseil that provident Nature had assigned an important role to these mammalia. indeed, they unlike seals, are designed to graze <laughs> designed to graze on the submarine prairies and thus destroy the accumulation of weed that obstructs the tropical rivers. Do you know, I added, what has been the result since men have almost entirely annihilated this useful race? That the putrefied weeds have poisoned the air and the poisoned air causes the yellow fever that desolates these beautiful countries. Enormous vegetations are multiplied under the torrid seas and the evil is irresistibly developed from the mouth of the Rio de la Plata to Florida. If we are to believe Turcinae, this plague is nothing to what it would be if the seas were cleaned of whales and seals. Then, infested with pulps, medici, and cuttlefish, they would become immense centres of infection, since their ways would not possess these vast stomachs that God had charged to invest the surface of the seas. End of the chapter. Huh, I quite like that little theory of what causes yellow fever there, that like yellow fever is caused by too many weeds in the sea. This is a 19th century book, don't forget. So their idea of disease is different to ours. But yeah, it's a, it's a good message, even if it's not quite right. It's, I like the message behind the conservation of the animals, that, that we need them for the whole ecosystem. So I'm going to stop reading because I think there's quite a lot left of the book. We are at 86% of the way through it. Whew, and the next chapter, chapter 18, is called The Poops. Poops? Poop-its? It's spelt P-O-U-L-P-S. So, hmm, don't really know what that is. I'm going to stop reading. It's fun. So, it's the end of the year, end of 2020. This is the last day of 2020. I will be glad when it's over and the new year will begin which is always exciting the new year is always exciting because there's always the possibilities for change and growth it's a lot of fun i will continue reading this at some point in the new year and we will finish it together i wish you a happy new year and join me for the next episode of tea and old books thank you for listening to tea and old books This has been me, Jenny, reading this to you, and join me tomorrow for another chapter. This podcast was brought to you by The Spanish Lockdown.